Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. Last episode, we went through the history of the Kingdom of Georgia and its predecessors, up through the life of David the Builder. This episode, we'll talk about Georgia after David, when a queen named Tamar ruled. Her reign is considered by many to be the height of the Golden Age of Georgia, as she further expanded the kingdom and saw significant cultural achievements. As always, maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 8, Episode 5, Tamar the Great, and this is the Almost Forgotten. After David the Builder died in 1125, his son Demetrius took the throne. Things didn't start off great, as there was some confusion about the inheritance. One chronicle records that David asked for Demetrius, who was 28 at the time, to act as a regent until another son, Voktang, was old enough to rule, in about 10 more years. Now to make matters worse, the chronicle records that David said this should happen if Voktang proved capable. If this seems like a mess, well, it was, and it's kind of hard to believe David would have left things this way. More likely, some nobles in Voktang's corner made this up, or were just angling all along to usurp Demetrius' throne in favor of another royal brother who would owe them. For the moment, though, Demetrius was in a solid position, getting all the rest of his inheritance, including David's money, his arms, and his army. Demetrius further expanded the kingdom of Georgia, incorporating Derbent on the Caspian Sea through a marriage alliance. Eventually, though, the inevitable happened, and Voktang, along with some allies, attempted to usurp the throne. Didn't work, and Voktang was blinded and soon died. Demetrius' rule was generally good for Georgia, but after 30 years, there was another succession crisis. Again, this one was somewhat self-inflicted. Demetrius, for some unrecorded reason, decided that his eldest son, David, should not be his heir, and instead wanted his son, George, to be the next king. This, of course, caused an issue, and in 1155, a powerful magnate who had fought with Demetrius helped lead a conspiracy. Demetrius was captured and sent to a monastery for six months. David was soon poisoned, perhaps by some nobles on Demetrius' side, and died. It's not entirely clear whether Demetrius was restored for a brief time, although that seems likely. It was a short-term move, though, just to ensure that his son George would be crowned, as he had intended, rather than David's young son Demna. George became George III, King of Georgia, in 1156, and Demna became the next target for magnate conspiracies. It didn't help that George didn't have legitimate sons, but we'll get there. Back-and-forth conflict with the Turks were part of George's reign, but eventually he won enough battles that the fighting subsided. Both sides had exhausted each other, and Georgia, well into its golden age, was enough of a force that the Seljuks were happy to keep the borders as they were. And eventually, unsurprisingly, despite George's military successes, 
a rebellion started. A powerful magnate, Yvain Orbelli, pulled together a large rebel force of 30,000 men, naming the 21-year-old Demna as the true and rightful king of Georgia. But as the rebels discussed their plans, they were overheard, and George was alerted. He gathered a small force of a few hundred, and this display caused the significantly larger rebel army to panic, some rebellious magnates deserting back to George. He captured Orbelli and had his eyes put out. A similar punishment for Demna led to his death. After this scare, George decided he needed to have a true succession plan. He crowned his eldest child, a daughter, as his co-ruler. In 1178, his daughter, Tamar, was named Queen of Georgia, and she would rule with him as long as he lived. Tamar was born in 1160, give or take, the daughter of the reigning king of Georgia, George III, and his wife, Berdukan. Berdukan was an Alan princess from the northern Caucasus region. We don't know much about Tamar's early life, nor her early reign, the latter a sign of a relatively peaceful beginning to her and end to George's rule. We do know that George elevated some important allies to the nobility. Some were Kipchaks, some were just Georgians of low birth, but it was both a reward for these men and a way to keep the Georgian magnates from holding too much power. In 1184, six years after naming his daughter as co-ruler, George died. Tamar had to jump through all sorts of hoops to placate the nobles, including a new coronation, and then they demanded she take away the positions of these newly ennobled men. She acquiesced to everything, leading the magnates to believe that maybe she was a bit of a pushover. So one of the magnates, the royal treasurer, demanded she set up an advisory council. This group would create the law of the kingdom, not Queen Tamar. This group would appoint people into open leadership positions, not Queen Tamar. They wanted a leadership council with authority over the queen, and a weak queen might have assented, but not Queen Tamar. She had the royal treasurer arrested, and when the other lords protested, she readied an army to teach them a lesson. In the end, negotiations settled the dispute. They didn't get the council. Queen Tamar kept her authority, and some of the magnates got cushy positions, but not the royal treasurer, who was spared but was drummed out of any role in her administration. Tamar, in order to secure her dynasty's succession, would need to get married. In the past, they would have looked towards Constantinople to find a suitable match. But even though the Romans had experienced a resurgence under Emperor Manuel Komnenos, they were in a relatively weak enough state that the Kievan Rus appeared to be a more interesting ally. 24-year-old Yuri Bogolyubsky was chosen for the job. Yuri had been the prince of Novgorod, but was deposed in 1175 when his father was assassinated. His father, Andrei, was the grand prince of Vladimir Suzdal and was essentially the leading prince of the Kievan Rus, although at this point it was a disunited group and he didn't hold authority over the whole region. Yuri seemed to be a perfect candidate. A child when his father was killed, the young prince had been spirited away to Kipchak lands, and he was now regarded as a strong military leader, and he still had significant familial ties to the Kievan Rus leadership. Tamar was skeptical, but her doubts were overruled by everyone around her. It wasn't just her magnates who wanted this move. Her family did too, concerned for the health of the dynasty. Well, 
you don't get called the great for being wrong too often. And it turns out everyone should have trusted Tamar's instincts. Despite her misgivings, the two were married in 1185. First, let's be clear, while Yuri was named king, Tamar was the reigning monarch, and that was acknowledged by everyone around her. Tamar was still not happy, and there's probably some evidence for this by the fact that they didn't have any children together. One of the reasons for her unhappiness was, it seems that Yuri was not exactly the picture of a royal prince. Okay, maybe he was the picture of a royal prince of the Eurasian steppe, hard-drinking, hard-fighting, womanizing. The obviously biased Georgian chronicles described him as utterly debauched and utterly depraved, which, I mean, let's not get carried away but he clearly developed this reputation with some merit. Because within two years, Tamar was demanding an annulment, and the church leaders, who were extremely important and influential during her reign, like maybe more important than most of the leading magnates, acquiesced to her demands. Yuri was given a bunch of money as compensation for his troubles and sent on a boat to Constantinople for some reason. Not sure why he wasn't sent back north and instead went to one of the stronger neighbors to talk bad about Tamar, but anyway, oh, and since Yuri was on the outs with the Kievan Rus when he came over, and he only lasted as a king for less than three years, it didn't lead to any sort of alliance. Speaking of the church, which was like a paragraph ago, remember, the patriarch died and a new one was named. This one was more amenable to his queen's requests, or at least he didn't put up as much of a fight. It allowed her to put the men she wanted into the leadership roles in her kingdom. Military leaders, the interior minister, things like that. It helped her consolidate her grip on power from when she was forced to strip titles from some of her father's choices. She also remarried, and Tamar seems to have been the one to have suggested this union. Certainly she approved of it. This time was to another northerner, a prince from Ossetia that was close to the royal family, David who was known as David Saslan. According to Donald Rayfield in The Edge of Empires, quote, the nickname Saslan is that of an Ossetian demigod, hewn from stone and reared on wolf's milk. In Kipchak, Saslan means dread. Just as Georgian princes had been raised in Byzantium, so Ossetian and Armenian princes were raised at the Georgian court to foster good relations between neighboring royal families, unquote. He was also a distant cousin. Tamar was descended from George I and his first wife, Miriam, her great-great-great-great-grandparents, and David Saslan was descended from George and his second wife, Aldi. This means that he was sort of already considered part of the royal family, and it seems there was little resistance to her choice. They were married around 1190. David was soon leading the military, as husband kings were supposed to do, and he found he was a busy man. The Turks raided into Tau Clarjeti again, and he was able to repulse their attacks. Then, a handsome ex returned, and David had to fight for Tamar's love. Not really, but Yuri did show up, and made for a pretty solid candidate to lead the disgruntled nobles who felt pushed aside by Tamar. Yuri made his way to Erzurum, a capital of a small sultanate that happened to be under Georgian control which should give you an idea of the complexities of the political situation. The sultan there was annoyed at his Georgian overlord for some reason or another, and a few noblemen and even a few pretty high-ranking officials joined him. This was no minor conspiracy. The men brought an army into Georgia proper, into eastern Lazica, 
They held a coronation for the new king, same as the old king, Yuri. Rayfield writes, quote, When Tamar recovered from her astonishment, she sent negotiators, the patriarch Tevdar Mirianisti and the bishop of Kutaisi, unquote. But the queen wasn't just twiddling her thumb, she was also gathering her forces. She was no fool. The negotiations were most likely a delaying tactic. After all, she wasn't about to give up her crown, and she already had a new husband, so even if she wasn't still repulsed by Yuri, which of course she was, there was no easy possibility of some quick end to this, at least not through peaceful means. The rebels, for their part, likely weren't stupid enough to think that she'd just let them take Lazica and keep hold of Tau Clarjetti from where they had come. Not that they had to conquer all of Georgia, march into Kartli slash Iberia, get a few more nobles to come over to their side, and boom, new administration. They knew they had to attack, so attack they did. A group of them went along a northerly route, in an attempt to take a couple of fortresses that would then open up the nearby valley and lead them straight into Tbilisi. Everything to the west of this was theirs, and Tbilisi would be a straight shot. Another force took a more southerly route, and after burning a town or two, ran into the Queen's army, led by David Saslan. This did not go well for the rebels, who were beaten soundly. The northern rebel army responded by wetting their pants and surrendering. Tamar, perhaps surprisingly, didn't respond by imprisoning or executing her insolent vassals. Yuri was sent back to Constantinople, sans money, and the magnates were, well, they were let off easy, although some of them found they didn't have nearly as much land as they once did. Despite this, at least one of the magnates wasn't that appreciative. One leader, a certain Guzan from the Tau region, gave his fortresses up to the Seljuks and led an attack. Saslan was there to face this threat, and he quickly captured Guzan. Rather than giving Tamar a chance to show Guzan mercy once again, Saslan had his eyes put out prior to any sort of trial, and then recaptured the fortresses. This was not the only great victory the couple had in 1191. Besides defeating a significant threat to her ruling government, her crown, possibly her life, Tamar did more than just keep her dynasty in charge, she perpetuated it by having her first child, a son named George. To celebrate, she sent her husband at the head of an army into nearby lands that were opposed to, or at least not ruled by Georgia. It's not clear they were actually trying to take more land. This may have been punitive for their involvement in the rebellion, but it was enough to get everybody really interested. The Turks responded by rallying their own forces, led by the governor of Azerbaijan. He started by invading Shirvan, which was once known as Caucasian Albania, a land in what is now eastern Azerbaijan, and it included the city of Baku, and was a close ally and a vassal of Tamar. The land was rocked by the invasion and an earthquake, and the Shirvan Shah, as he was titled, appealed to Tamar for help. As if that wasn't enough to get them moving, Yuri came back to fight alongside the Atabeg of Azerbaijan. Now, he was actually quickly defeated and imprisoned, and that's the last we'll hear of Tamar's ex. But still, a war was on, Yuri or no Yuri. David Saslan marched out into the territory to the southeast of Kartli, south of Shirvan, to take on the Atabeg. He approached the city of Shamkor with a small contingent of forces to try and capture it. But he also had a larger contingent of forces that the enemy was not aware of, 
which he marched around to the other side of the town. The smaller force attacked head-on and was in danger of being defeated until Saslan emerged from the other side to rout the Turks. According to Rayfield, quote, Saslan, acting like Achilles, came to the rescue, broke through the city gates, and attacked the enemy's rear. This was a triumph comparable to the Battle of Didgori 74 years earlier. The caliph's standards were seized and given by Tamar to the Kakuli Monastery, unquote. I'm pretty sure the acting like Achilles line was from the original sources. After taking the city, they proceeded to Ganza, the regional capital, and were welcomed in, taking it without a fight. It was not a permanent occupation. They put the Atabeg's brother in charge, but the Atabeg escaped and then had his brother poisoned. Tamar and her military couldn't hold Ganza, but in general, she continued George's expansion and ran into opposition from the Sultanate of Rum. This was technically just a successor state to the once mighty Seljuk Empire, and while the Atabeg of Azerbaijan technically wasn't independent and swore allegiance to them, he really was independent, and Rum only controlled the interior of Anatolia. That being said, they were still a power in the region, and were certainly giving the Byzantines fits. The Sultan took nearby territory of a Georgian vassal and threatened to invade Kartli and Lazica. There were some letters exchanged between the two rulers. They weren't particularly nice. The Sultan said if Tamar would convert when his armies invaded, she could be his wife. Otherwise, she'd have to settle for being his concubine. The envoy who relayed this message received a punch to the face from her commander-in-chief for saying this, and Tamar, for her part, didn't back down. Just the opposite, actually. The Georgians pulled together a large army to take on the Sultan and his insults. Well, not just his insults, he had assembled a massive force that the Chronicles record as having completely unrealistic numbers. Let's just assume the Georgians had a large army, but they were still outnumbered by a decent amount. Tamar herself marched out with her army in 1202 towards Anatolia, although she stopped at a well-known monastery in southern Georgia to pray for her army before she returned to her capital. The size of the larger Seljuk army may have limited its mobility, and the Georgians were able to surprise them with a rapid advance, catching the Turks camped near the city of Bassiani. David Saslan, as well as the leading general envoy face-punching commander-in-chief, led the attack, but after several assaults, the Georgians had been pushed back. They faced a possible defeat, before surprising the Turks yet again, this time with a reserve force that helped encircle the enemy and capture the Sultan's banner. That ended the fighting as the Turks fled, and the Georgian army was able to capture a significant haul. Meanwhile, Alexios Komnenos, the descendant of the Byzantine emperor of the same name, grandson of an emperor, and also Tamar's nephew, being the son of Rusudan, Tamar's sister, had been living under Tamar's protection after fleeing from Constantinople. Leading an army of Tamar's men, Alexios seized the city of Trebizond on the southeastern Black Sea coast. This vestige of the Byzantine Empire was likely a vassal to Georgia, although that is actually a bit unclear. Whether a vassal or not, Tamar offered significant support to her nephew. They garrisoned cities like Trebizond and Sinope with Georgian troops, but it was easier politically to say she was simply helping her Byzantine allies rather than taking over anything herself. It's also not clear the motivation for this, 
whether she wanted Alexios to lead a full-on revolt and take Constantinople, or to just create a new kingdom dependent on her. The timing, though, was really interesting, because right around the same time, although too early for them to know before they took Trebizond, the Fourth Crusade brought about the Latin conquest of Constantinople. You can hear all about that in Season 1, Episode 7 on Enrico Dondolo. For Georgia, it eliminated any pretense of Roman power and made it the preeminent Orthodox power south of the Black Sea. And Alexios and Trebizond suddenly became one of the leading candidates to restore Byzantine presence in the capital. In 1207, David Soslan died, but Tamar's generals were not done. In 1210, they led a raid into the heart of Persian lands, part of the Quarism Empire. They followed the southern shore of the Caspian and raided cities like Tabriz. Although this was wisely not a march of conquest, they made it to the southeastern shores of the Caspian, far afield from Georgia. They brought back a significant amount of loot, but were careful not to outstretch themselves and return to their home laden with treasure. After her husband's death, Tamar crowned their eldest son George as her co-regent, and she spent the next few years out of the spotlight, or at least out of the chronicles. She only lived another six years after this point, and we don't know much about her life at that time. What we do know is that when she died in 1213, Georgia, including all its vassal territory, was as big as the kingdom had ever been. She had some sort of long-term illness which led to her death, and she knew the end was coming. She had time to put her son George in place as co-ruler, so that when she died, there was no problem with him taking the throne. George became the solo king in 1213 upon his mother's death, and he was around the age of 20. He was an energetic ruler and considered a strong warrior. He put down rebellions, especially among the Muslim vassals, that popped up immediately after his mother died. But he was not the most politically astute king, marrying a commoner against the church's wishes, and eventually being forced to divorce her. He continued to antagonize the Khwarizm Empire of Iran, and was about to face a large invasion force from them, when they noticed a little something coming from their eastern marches. It was 1218, and it was when Genghis Khan invaded the Khwarizm homeland, and within two years he had taken it. In 1220, the Mongols also sent forces into Georgia, in a sort of reconnaissance mission. They were at first repulsed by George IV and holed themselves up in Shirvan. They had a relatively small force, something like 10,000 men, and didn't expect to conquer Georgia. They were probably planning on wintering in Shirvan. George certainly thought this was the case, and he set about trying to raise troops. But the Mongols might have caught wind of his plans. They definitely received some reinforcements. So, with the element of surprise they marched out in the dead of winter and attacked. As was typical at the time, the Mongols advanced, feigned a retreat, and then ambushed George as he was pursuing the fleeing initial wave. The Georgians were routed, and George was badly wounded. But, despite not being far from Tbilisi, the Mongols did not stick around to mop up. This was, after all, only a recon force. However, George's wound was not a minor one, and he eventually succumbed to it, although it wasn't until 1223. His sister, Rusudin, succeeded him, and he did his best to ensure this went off without a hitch. 
She was not the kind of ruler that Tamar was, though. Unlike her mother, she allowed her advisors to do most of the work. She seemed to have been a bit of a figurehead. Not the best time for this kind of thing, what with Genghis Khan existing on the same continent. Rusadin was given a bit of a reprieve, though, as the Mongols prioritized other regions. But it would not last. The new Khwarezm Shah, Jalal ad-Din, was putting up something of a fight against the Mongols. But he was always on the move, trying to reestablish his empire. After reuniting much of Iran, as well as eastern Mesopotamia, he moved north with his large force into the Caucasus. He defeated a Georgian force sent to stop him, although he didn't pursue further, hopeful that Rusadin might ally with him and help him defeat the Mongols. Negotiations got nowhere, however, despite both sides knowing they'd probably never be able to win on their own. Eventually, Jalal ad-Din invaded again, and he was able to take Tbilisi. George's golden age was officially over. Rusadin recovered Tbilisi in 1227, lost it again, and was generally watching her kingdom shrink over the next decade, although Jalal ad-Din had problems of his own, and the powers in the region, including the Sultanate of Rum, were happy to side with Georgia to keep Khwarazm from conquering them. And then in 1235 it finally happened. The Mongols returned in full force. Georgia had little energy or willpower to fight, especially after the devastation of the last decade. The queen, as well as the magnates, fled to their own fortresses, while the Mongols picked apart the former vassal states. It was all over, though, and in 1239, a final treaty was worked out. Georgia submitted as a vassal state to the Mongol Empire. It is fitting that Georgia's golden age, which began after such a vigorous response to the invasions of the steppe riders that were the Seljuk Turks, ended after the even more vigorous invasions of the steppe riders that were the Mongols. The kingdom in some ways split, with western Georgia, really Lazica, Old Colchis remained moderately independent, and eastern Georgia, Kartli, Iberia, more subject to Mongol rule. Although even there, the Mongols realized they needed a local ruler if they didn't want unrest, and the Georgian warriors became a respected part of the Mongol army. Despite this, though, and despite several other disastrous nomadic invasions, Georgia remained, at least officially, a single kingdom until 1490. At that point, it splintered into several kingdoms, including, but not limited to, Imereti in the west, Kartli in the middle, and Kakheti in the east. Kartli and Kakheti were united in the middle of the 18th century, but Iran was a significant threat, to the point that the king tried to negotiate a union into the Russian Empire that would allow his family to continue to rule in some capacity. Eventually, though, kings die, new people sit on thrones, and Russia outright annexed the kingdom at the dawn of the 1800s. Imereti could only put up a fight for another decade or so, and soon all of Georgia was part of Russia. Georgia gained a brief independence after the Russian Revolution in 1918. Led by Menshevik politicians, it was actually a multi-party social democratic republic. But Georgia was not allied with the socialists to the north, and the antagonistic relationship eventually broke down. The USSR sent in the Red Army, and the short-lived Democratic Republic of Georgia was no more. When the Soviet Union collapsed, Georgia became independent once again, 
Not since the days of Tamar has Georgia been as large and as independent for as long as it has today. Tamar led the kingdom of Georgia successfully in the last days of its golden age, and let's be clear, there was no decline during her lifetime. She died in 1213 when Genghis Khan was still subduing Central Asia and had not yet made his way into Iran. Tamar's successful rule during the end of Georgia's golden age has led her to become a legendary figure in Georgian history. She ruled more territory than any other Georgian monarch. Her kingdom stretched from the Caspian Sea to the Black Sea. She ruled over vassal states that stretched her lands well into Anatolia and up into the northern Caucasus. And while it wasn't technically a vassal, she sent the troops that Komnenos used to conquer Trebizond, creating a dependency that controlled much of the eastern Black Sea coast that wasn't already her lands. Culture in Georgia also flourished during her lifetime. Although much of the Georgian artwork at the time was modeled on what was in Constantinople, the Middle Eastern, especially Persian, influences are obvious, making it somewhat quite different than Byzantine artwork, creating a unique blend. Literature flourished as well. What might be called Georgia's national epic was written at this time. The story, called The Knight in the Panther's Skin, is an epic poem that might be called chivalric romance, although its stylistic roots are Persian. Tamar ruled an empire that sat at the intersection of Europe and Asia of the Muslim and Christian worlds. Tamar, David the Builder, and the other Georgian kings politically tolerated the diversity of their subjects, and culturally, they fully embraced it. Next episode, we'll move west and north to a man who flourished around the time of Tamar's birth and cobbled together a small kingdom out of a group of outsiders who ended up helping define the culture for the region. Thanks for listening. 